Hey everyone, welcome to the Pursue God podcast. I'm Pastor Brian Dwyer, joined here in the studio by Pastor Ross Anderson. Ross, today is our special edition of the podcast because we're going to talk today about Palm Sunday. That's what we've got coming up on Sunday. So why don't we start before we jump into all the details and the scripture behind it. I think people are going to learn more than they ever ever knew about Palm Sunday today, hopefully. But what exactly is Palm Sunday? For someone who's listening, someone who's new to this, they don't even really know what that is. What what do we mean by Palm Sunday? Yeah, Palm Sunday is simply the Sunday before Easter. Easter falls on a Sunday one week before. The week in between, historically by the church, has been called Holy Week. And so Good Friday is the day Jesus died on the cross, working backwards to the previous Sunday. That's called Palm Sunday. So working forward, it's Palm Sunday, then Good Friday, and then Easter Sunday. Correct. Okay. Why do they call it Palm Sunday? Why do well, Christians call it that? Right. You, we'll, we'll see that as we go in the story, but uh, it involves the use of palm branches. So the story is about how Jesus is welcomed into Jerusalem in the final week of his life. And people have there's great expectations for what people are, are think is going to happen when he enters, and we'll talk about that too. Uh, And so people are welcoming him in a very dramatic way. They're laying palm branches down on the road as sort of a red carpet, so to speak, uh, waving them in the the air, and we'll explain the significance of that in a moment. But that's where the, the day gets its name in Christian history. All right, now there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In today's message, we're going to be jumping around a little bit between the Gospels as we Take a look at some of the characters in the story. Obviously, Jesus is the main character in the story, but we're, we're going to talk about three different camps. And as you're listening, as everybody's listening today, maybe on your way to work, or maybe you're listening to this with a small group or with your family or with, a, with your spouse, I want you to think about which of these three camps you would place yourself in, these three, these three different groups of people that we see in the Palm Sunday story um, but Ross, why is it that we're jumping around? Some people might say, well, why do you have to jump? Or why, not, why not just tell the story? Why don't you just pick one and tell the one story? Well, each of the Gospels, this is the strength of the four Gospels. Each one of them tells it from a particular point of view, and so each Gospel writer is adding some nuance or some detail that the other ones didn't add. And so sometimes we're going we're gonna to look at some interesting nuggets and some, some fascinating uh, truths that maybe only are recounted in one of the of the four gospels. So that's why we're going to we're going to kind of pull together the story, a composite from the different writers. Yeah, and the first the first gospel we're going to look at is the gospel of John. So if you're following along at home, look up John chapter 12. This is where we start with the story from John's point of view. In John chapter 12, it says in verse verse 9 through 11 it says when all of the people heard of Jesus's arrival, they flocked to see him and also to see Lazarus, the man that Jesus had raised from the dead. And verse 10 says, Then the leading priests decided to kill Lazarus too, for it was because of him that many of the people had deserted them and believed in Jesus. So this gives us our first crowd, the first group that you might belong to. And I would imagine if you're listening to this podcast, you wouldn't fall in this group, but maybe so. And we're going to call these just the angry adversaries. These are the people who are going to reject Jesus no matter what the evidence says. So, Ross, what evidence are we talking about in Jesus' day? Well, this sets it up uh, because in John chapter 11, 
Jesus' friend Lazarus had died. Jesus raised him from, the t- from death. He'd been in the tomb for four days, and Jesus raised him back to life again. That got a lot of people's attention. They're like, there's a buzz around this because of a, a crazy miracle that Jesus had just done. Now, Lazarus and his family lived in the town of Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem. So Jesus is not quite in the city yet. Mm -hmm. He's approaching the city. He's staying out in the suburbs, you could say. And people heard that he was coming, so boom, they want to get out there. They want to see this guy. They want to see this miracle worker. They want to see Lazarus for themselves to, to find out what's going on. And then you can see the impact of that miracle was drawing a lot of people toward Jesus. And it says in verse 11 there that it was because of Lazarus that many people had deserted the leading priests. So what does it mean, deserted the leading priests and believe in Jesus? Was it an either-or for them in that day? Well, it was for the leading priests, because <laughs> right. they, they had the power. And so they wanted to maintain their power. They wanted to maintain the things, the, the status quo, the way that it was. It was good for them. They were in charge, you know, so... Um, so it's interesting in verse 10, it says they decided to kill Lazarus too. Well, that see, that the mm-hmm. two there means they'd already decided to kill Jesus. Right. They'd already made a plot to, to, to get rid of him. And they said, well, I better get rid of Lazarus too while we're at it. They were so dead set against Jesus because he threatened their way of life, their way of thinking, and their normality. So this reminds me of people today in our culture today, because I, I, I think that there are people in our culture today who have just already decided. They said, I don't care what evidence you show me. I, I think it's interesting that, that our, the secular culture embraces science when science tells the narrative, supports the narrative that they want to spin, and then they reject science when it doesn't. I think there are a lot of examples of this, mm-hmm. but it is. I th- you know I'm, I don't want to be unfair to secular people because I think anyone anyone can do this. It, it really the word for this is honestly the word for this is faith. There are certain things you've already decided that you're gonna you're going to believe, and you're gonna embrace it. the The irony is that secular people, people who have already decided, we're not going to believe Jesus no matter what. I don't care if he raises a dead man. <clears throat> And right. re- that's the story of Easter. Right. Jesus is the dead man. Lazarus was just the precursor to the real mm-hmm. miracle, which is the miracle of Easter, that Jesus rose himself from the dead. And the fascinating thing is that there was a miracle, and the, the, the chief priests, the leading priests, didn't deny the miracle. They said, uh-oh, there's a miracle. We better cover it up. We better do something to make sure that the implications of this real event that actually happened don't undermine us. Mm-hmm. So it's fascinating. People can go to great lengths, uh, mental gymnastics, to come up with a solution. Uh, it's, there's a confirmation bias going on here. They had already decided that Jesus couldn't be trusted or shouldn't be listened to, so no matter what he does, it's not, never going to be enough to change their mind. So let me, let me just ask Ross, pastor to pastor here, because I, I would imagine some people listen... I would imagine most people listening to this wouldn't put themselves in this camp, in this first camp. It's probably going to be one of the next two camps. What would you say to the Christian who's listening to this who says, I have a friend at work who is just like that? He, the more we talk about it, it's just so clear that he has already decided and he's not going to change his mind. What, what advice would you give to the Christian who's trying to share Jesus with this angry adversary 
who's just determined to reject Jesus at all costs? Well, I think the bigger picture is, yes, we're called to be witnesses, um, to tell people what Jesus has done in our life and who He is, but there, there's a spiritual issue at, at large here. There's a spiritual blindness that only the Holy Spirit can convict somebody of their sin, of their um, of the reality of God, and, and so forth. So there's got to be like, I can only go so far as I'm able to go, and I have to leave the rest up to God. It's a matter that becomes a prayer. I still want to be friendly. I still want to be uh, living a life of integrity before them mm-hmm. and so forth, but ultimately, I can't make anybody believe. Yeah, I think about how Jesus was, would answer, or how would we answer that question for Jesus? It, Jesus, it seems to me that Jesus didn't spend a lot of time trying to convince the, the angry a- adversaries. I think he offered it to them. He offered them the truth, just like he offered everybody the truth, but he didn't go chasing them down, begging them, please reconsider, reconsider. He gave, he gave them an opportunity, and I think maybe Jesus just had a certain confidence that those who had ears to hear would hear. Right, exactly. Now, yeah, so th- that's a great point, to understand that um, it's, there's this whole other thing gotta, that's got to be going on in that person's heart and life that only Holy Spirit can do mm-hmm. to make them open to our witness. Yeah, that's so, good. Yeah, keep moving in a way, right? Yeah. So, yeah. All right, well, that's camp number one, the angry adversary. The second camp, we're going to call this camp the dedicated disciples. I know it's a little cheesy, but it's, you know, it's church. These are the people, the dedicated disciples are the people who obey Jesus even when they don't have the full picture. There's a really cool story here in Luke chapter 19, verses 29 to 31. It says that Jesus went on toward Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples, And as he came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead of him. And here's what he said, verse verse 30. He said, go into that village over there, and as you enter it, you'll see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. Now, Ross, I've always thought this part of the story has always been really interesting to me because... I I searched commentaries. I've dug all over the place to see is there some aside from the colt and the donkey and that stuff, that stuff is in 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 the old testament. But the fact that he asked them just to go to some random person's house and just grab the donkey just always struck me as really odd. And the best I can come up with is it is that it just really illustrates what a dedicated what a dedicated disciple is like that they they don't understand the full picture. It seems a little strange, this, these instructions, and yet they go and do it. You know, I've thought about that the same way, too, and I'm thinking to myself, like, yeah, what's going on here? And, and you know, the story never explains to us, even us today, in retrospect, reading back, it never really explains to us who that person was or what that was all about. But it, I think it's a great illustration for us that... Jesus, he knows the bigger picture. He, he, he sees all the parts and how they all relate. We only, we only sometimes just know our little piece. We maybe know the little lane that we're in, and um, we don't have to know all the rest in order to be faithful and be obedient with the, with the one thing that Jesus gave us to do. 
Yeah, and it wasn't just the disciples, really. It's apparently even the owner of the donkey, because in one of the Gospels, he they they actually do interact with him, and he says, oh, okay, the Lord needs it. So presumably it was a follower of Jesus already, somebody who knew Jesus, maybe had an interaction with Jesus earlier in Jesus's ministry. We don't really know. But what we do know is that he just faithfully obeyed. And even though he didn't know exactly what was what was going on and what this was all about in the first place. Yeah, exactly. There's, he didn't ask questions. He, what are you going to do with it? Tell me, what's Jesus going to, when's he going to get, bring it back? You know, whatever. He just, the Lord needs it. That was enough. And, um, you know, he told these guys, go, go find that donkey. That was enough. I don't know what questions they might have had in their mind. There's nothing that's recorded here. They might have been thinking, like, what? You know, what are you going to do, Jesus? What's, what's it all about? And um, he didn't really tell them. But they were obedient to him because here's the thing, Ryan, that I've, that I've noticed here. This is not just mindless, blind obedience, mm-hmm. because Jesus had developed a track record with them. They'd seen him over and over and over again. They'd seen his wisdom. They'd seen his authority. Um, they'd seen things that Jesus said that made sense later. You know, he said, uh, let's feed the 5,000. Well, we don't have anything to feed him with. Well, Jesus provided. So over and over and over again, he'd proven that he knew the big picture and that he was trustworthy. And so by then they figured out, oh, if, if he says to do it, I guess I should just do it. And to me, that's the essence of faith, is, is, re- is, trusting, is trusting in God and his perspective and his sovereignty and his heart and his ability over your own limited perspective. It's recognizing that you don't have the full picture ever. That's why I love this part of the story. I love that the Gospels include it. Because I've met, we both have in ministry met so many people who are trying to discern the will of God. They want to understand the will of God. And, and some people expect that God is going to speak to them in an audible voice, uh, or that God is going to ma- just make it so clear to them. That usually isn't what happens. Usually what, ha- what happens is a scripture verse that I love whenever I think about the will of God and discerning the will of God is in the, in the Proverbs where it says, the steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord. To me, what that means is it's my job to be righteous. It's my job to be obedient, find out what God wants me to do and just do it. And then it's God's job to order our steps. And that's what I see in this picture. Jesus says, go do this thing. They're like, it doesn't really make sense, but we trust you and we're just going to be obedient. You take one obedient step of faith in a second. And I'm sure at some point, probably when, when they're taking the donkey and the owner says, no, that's cool. They're like, oh, well, then Jesus knew what he was doing all along. I didn't have the full picture, but he did. It's a good thing I trusted him. Yeah, and then later when, when they enter the city of Jerusalem, as we'll see the, the picture and the response of the crowds, they, probably some light bulbs went on there for them as well, yeah. and that later on when they saw how Jesus was actually using it. But I think, you know, here's the thing. Um, you might be thinking... I want to follow the will of God, and I want to obey what Jesus says, but Jesus has never told me, you know, go to the next village, go find a donkey, you know, with that level of explicit um, detail about my life. And I wish he would tell me, okay, take the job over there and, you know, and pursue this uh, degree in college or marry that person. Um, You know, those things, he's not likely going to tell us with this kind of clarity, but what he's given us is he's given us his word. And so we have Scripture, we have the Bible, to tell us the things that are basic, the fundamental things, 
And, you know, we may not understand what is going to happen in our life beyond that, but if we're following those fundamental things that are clear in Scripture, then we can really trust God to guide our steps, like you said, direct our steps into the things that maybe aren't as clear or well-defined in Scripture. Yeah, I like to call it the trifecta, right? We, I think we, when in, our, in the pursuit we talk about this. The trifecta for honoring God is these three things. It's God's, like you said, God's Word, the Bible. When I'm trying to discern God's will, I go to God's Word. I say, does God's Word have something to say about this? Does it say, does it tell me whether to marry a blonde or a brunette, right? Well, no, it's not going to give you that specificity, but it does say some things about marriage right. and who you should be looking right. for. So any information I could gather from God's Word, I want to do that, and, and I want to be obedient to God's Word. That's the first thing. The second thing, this is in no particular order, is God's Spirit, because I would actually put God's Spirit first personally. But God's Spirit, I want to make sure that I'm spending time really in prayer over this thing, saying, God, w- lead me, guide me. Now, when I, I don't know about you, Ross, but when I've never, ever heard God's audible voice I've never, he's never said, and at any point, and I've had to make some important decisions, who to marry, where to do ministry, things like that, where to go to college, and and yet I've never heard God's audible word, but many, but I've many times in prayer have felt um, a, a, a piece about something, a prompting. Right. I guess I would, I don't know, maybe these words sound weird to a non-believer, but these are the... So it's not an audible voice. I, we hear a lot of people say, God, God spoke to me. spoke to me, but they think people usually mean that metaphorically. I think so. Right, that God impressed a thought on my heart or my thinking, yeah. or, or this idea came from somewhere that didn't seem like it came from me, or in the context of prayer and seeking the Holy Spirit, Yeah. Yeah, so you have God's Word, you have God's Spirit, which which a big part of that is praying and really um, yielding to God in prayer and really trying to let Him speak to you in prayer. And then the third, the third part of the trifecta is God's people. Mm-hmm. I think it's so important for us not to be in isolation, especially when we're making big decisions. It's so important that we have godly parents or friends or a spouse or somebody to go to to say, here's what I'm thinking— is this crazy? Here's what I'm thinking. What do you think about this? So God's God's word, God's spirit, and God's people. And in my life, I remember years ago when I when I married my wife, I I used these three things in my life. I spent a lot of time praying. I went to God's word. I, I mean, not just in the moment, but for years I was in God's word so that I really understood who I was looking for and what God's picture of marriage was. Um, but then that third thing was so important when I finally did meet Tracy, I did everything I, I as often as I could. I got us around my friends, mm-hmm. my family members, and I let them see us interact. And then afterward, I would ask them, what do you think? I remember my roommate, Steve, I said, Steve, what do you think? Do you think we're a good fit? I think she might be the one. Am I crazy? What do you think? And that was really important for me as far as discerning the will of God, understanding what God's will is, because I think we can all relate to these disciples right. when God calls us to do something, but the picture is a little bit unclear. Is mm-hmm. Doesn't that just describe life? Right, that's life. And we, we all want more certainty than we're probably going to get. And, and honestly, I've always said, if God were just to give us the blueprint, we wouldn't really have any reason to trust God from that point on. Mm. 
So he wants us to walk with him. He wants us to connect with him moment by moment, day by day. And so we're, we're like, our guidance is not a map that God gave us. Our guidance is he's uh, holding our hand and walking us down the path. That's good. All right, now there's a couple, there are a couple of prophecies from the Old Testament that I want to bring in at this point, because I, th- I do think that even though the disciples were confused about this, about the fact that they were going to some random guy's house, what they weren't confused about, probably, is this prophecy from Zechariah, from the Old Testament, Zechariah 9.9, it says, Rejoice, O people of Zion, shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. And so there was this prophecy in Zechariah 9.9 that is important for us to understand with Palm, the context as the greater context for Palm Sunday, because the people of God knew that the Messiah would be riding in on a donkey. They knew that from Zechariah 9.9. And in fact, if you read a little further in the book of Zechariah, chapter 14, verses 3 and 4, check out what it says there. Then the Lord will go out to fight against those nations as he has fought in times past. And on that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, which remember, this is exactly where they were. Right, those, those towns that were mentioned, they were approaching Jerusalem from the east, from the side of the of the Mount of Olives, so those pieces all could start to click and to connect into place. Yeah, and, and that and that's really what leads to this this third group, this third crowd that you might relate to, and we we're going to call this third group the fickle followers, and these are the people who welcome Jesus on their own terms. They welcome a version of Jesus that, it, that they've sort of fashioned themselves. It's a version. Now, maybe they've got some reason for this, mm-hmm. but it's a, it's a picture that's just a little bit off. Mm-hmm. And this, I think, is kind of what we see ultimately in the story. And so let's explain that a little bit. Well, their picture of Jesus, we'll see, is not totally made up, but it's not complete either. Right? right? So... Um, when you mention the Messiah, that's a that's a, a Bible-y word. The word means uh, the uh, the anointed king. Okay, the Messiah is from Hebrew. It means anointed, and it's talking about that king mentioned in Zechariah and all of the other places in the Old Testament that talk about this king who was promised to come. And the term Messiah became like a shorthand for all of the data about him, all the expectations about him. Um, that king is Jesus. So he, so when he is enter, about to enter into the city of Jerusalem, through the gates of Jerusalem, he's riding this colt, and all of these expectations and these Old Testament images congeal in the minds of all the people. There's already crowds who are anticipating him because of Lazarus, and they'd been gone out to the to the town, and then uh, Bethany, as he comes into town, they're sort of gathered by the gate. The word is getting around, the buzz around town, and so people are gathering, and in, boom, and he comes through the gate, riding on the colt, and that's when the crowds begin to acknowledge him um, as the coming king. It says in Matthew 21, verses 8 and 9, most of the crowds spread their garments on the road ahead of him. And others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, 
and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. And this is why we call this day Palm Sunday, because they were cutting these palm branches, which were which were the symbol of Jewish nationalistic hopes, right? The palm branch was like the was like the Jewish symbol. And so remember, the Jews at this time are living in a day in a in the Roman era where the Romans were ruling over them, and they were they were somewhat generous rulers, right? They let them have their own faith and their synagogues and and that kind of stuff. So in, in, in terms of world history up until that point, it was a better deal than probably a lot of other people had gotten. Right. But they still felt oppressed. The Jewish people felt oppressed. And whenever they would read some of these stories, like in Zechariah or in other Old Testament passages, they had this picture of the Messiah who was going to come and, and, and r- overthrow the Roman rule overthrow these oppressors so that they could have that wonderful nationalistic time again, the time, the, the times of old, David's Israel. This is what they were hoping for. This is what they wanted. Right, because back in the day when King David and King Solomon, his son, ruled over, over Israel, it was the golden age. You know, they were prosperous over all of their enemies. The, the land was at peace because they'd conquered everybody around them. The land was prosperous, so people were making money, and things were great, and the coffers were filling, and it was uh, a time of uh, where they were just really riding high in the ancient world. And so, actually, the prophet, in Second Samuel 7, a prophet comes to King David, and he says he has a message for, for him from God, and he says, look, because you've been faithful to me, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to there, there's going to be your descendant will be on the throne of Israel. Nobody will, you know, that your descendant will always rule. There's always going to be um, a descendant of great King David is the king. That's why they called him, praise God, they said they shouted for the son of David, meaning the descendant of David. So they said, oh, this is the one that was told, foretold back in 2 Samuel, back in Zechariah, in many other places. And so he's going to be the one that's going to, what? Their expectations is to reinstitute that golden age and to throw off the shackles of Rome. You know, this is their, they're thinking, wow, you know, God's at work. This is really going to happen now. Better days are, are here. And yet, he, here's, here's part of the issue with that, I think, from a, from a historical point of view, is that's we're going to see this in a second. Is that's not who Jesus really was. Mm-hmm. So this crowd is it's the populist Jesus, and I think this relates to us today because two thousand years later, I think this is really what many Christians would fall into this camp. I know some listening might say, "Well, no, I'm a dedicated disciple." Well, yeah, maybe you are, but I think there are a lot of Christians in American Christianity that fall into the fickle follower camp. What you've, what we've really done, we all, we all contend toward this. Even me, I recognize I contend toward this. My own faith has been tested. Is, is I'm, I'm good when I have what I want from Jesus, when I'm having the life I've always wanted, mm-hmm. as, right. as I think Joel Osteen said, and it's this prosperity gospel. Jesus is God, God. Jesus has come to serve you to give you health and wealth and prosperity. And so then as soon as you don't have what you expect from Jesus, 
you, it, it rocks your faith, and that's when you realize that you're a fickle follower. Because actually, once Jesus is, on, is heading to the cross, what happens to these crowds? Yeah, so this is such an interesting thing. It's Sunday, and the crowds are all praising him and shouting and welcoming him and throwing their coats on the ground and everything. Well, just think five days later, just five days later, Jesus spent the whole week in Jerusalem talking in the uh, temple precincts, in public, where everyone could hear the things he was saying, he began to say some things that, that you know, maybe didn't sound like, oh, he's going to seize the throne and, and throw off the Romans. He started to talk about a bigger picture. And then he's arrested on Thursday night and dragged in and, and before the Romans, and the Romans win. The Romans flog him and crucify him, and so by Friday afternoon, he's died on the cross. So, you know, if you remember that, that Friday morning, uh, Pilate says, look, I, here's the custom. I'll release a prisoner to you every year at Passover time. Who do you want? This guy's innocent. You should take him. And the crowd goes, no, give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. These are the same people who are going, praise to the son of David. And then five days later, they're going like, no, done with you. Give us somebody who will really free us from Rome. You know, so that's why wow. the, the idea of the, their fickleness is this, this, their expectations weren't met, their hopes weren't fulfilled, and so they rejected Jesus. Yeah, they wanted Jesus on their terms, and when five days later they realized they couldn't have that Jesus, they abandoned him. And this is, I think, again, where we need to be introspective and think about this in our own lives. Is that how we view Jesus? Is that what our relationship with Jesus is like? We only want Jesus on our terms. So if we've got our, our jobs great, our finances look great, our health is great, our kids love Jesus, they go to church with us. But as soon as one of those, one of those things fails to come through, is, is our faith so fickle that we that we begin to call for someone else or something mm-hmm. else, yeah. right? Yeah. We want Barabbas, right? And so it becomes the it becomes really the Jesus that we have fashioned, that we've made, mm-hmm. we've created, buddy Jesus, we've created, yeah. whatever prosperity, whatever Jesus. thing, uh, whatever it is that we desire, we've cast Jesus into that mold. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was thinking about this. I, uh, there's a there's a family friend. Um, that my wife was talking to the other day, and, and she has been, she raised her kids as a Christian. Her husband's a Christian. He's a great guy. Um, but as she got older and her father died of difficult situations, and her stepmom was the only one left behind, her stepmom always hated her and treated her, mistreated her, and really nasty woman. Uh, but she claimed to be a Christian, the stepmom, the wicked stepmother. Um, you know, and through through all of that, then th- this woman that we know, she just gradually decided at some point she's I'm not going to be a Christian anymore. You know, because it's like what she expected God to do something different to make her life easier. To maybe he expected God to do something to change the stepmother against her will or something like that. And and when it didn't happen, she just she just said, "No, it's not working for me. So forget it." Yeah, and I. I... We, I had a situation that tested my faith years, 15 years ago, maybe, where I, you know, it was early in ministry, and I, the doctor said I was, I had cancer, and that I was, you know, it wasn't good. It was eating away at my bones, 
And I remember for those three weeks that I, this was probably the greatest test of faith in my life. And I'll be honest, Ross, I'm not satisfied with how I responded to it. Now, I didn't lose my faith in it. It drove me more to, more to God. I, I, Tracy and I needed Jesus more than ever, and our prayer life was better than ever because it was real, it was so real, and we were so desperate. But in retrospect, after that situation, I just thought, you know, there, I just still had a lot of anxiety. I had a lot of fear that gripped me that I was not satisfied with. I felt like maybe that wasn't, wouldn't have been my response. And, but I know that, that my faith will be tested again. And I think all, for all of us, this is true, is our faith will be tested again. And so who will we be more like? Will we be more like the, the dedicated disciples who said, I don't understand it. I don't know why I would have to go to some random guy's house. I, that doesn't really make sense to me. I don't have the full picture but I'm going to be obedient anyway. To me, that's in stark contrast to the followers who thought they had the full picture, but the picture that they had wasn't the right picture. Mm-hmm. And, and when they got to that point, they instead of saying, let me adjust my picture to right. align it with who Jesus really is, instead of doing that, they just bailed on Jesus altogether. Yeah, it happens. It's common. We should all be ready for you know those testings to come or those times of, of doubt to come and it's gonna it's gonna say a lot about about who we really are it doesn't say anything about who Jesus really is yeah he is who he is and we're gonna see in a moment but it will say something about who we are yeah and the truth is and let's just close with this and a couple more scriptures the truth is someday everyone will understand who Jesus really is Wh- whatever camp you put yourself in in that story, Someday, the, the Bible makes this so clear, someday everyone will know who Jesus really is. And, and so the prosperity Jesus is going to go away, and the, I don't know, what, whatever, the, the, the buddy Jesus is going to go, and all these little pictures of Jesus we can have are all going to fade away, and the real Jesus is going to be the only one standing. The Bible says that, that on that day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But I love how it says it in Luke 19, verses 39 to 40. It says, some of the Pharisees among the crowd, when, when the people were praising Jesus and when they were worshiping him, and they, what they were actually doing is they were singing this song from Psalm 118 when they said, blessed is who comes in the name of the Lord, which was a messianic psalm. Everybody knew that. And so the Pharisees said to Jesus, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. In other words, they're, they've got the wrong one, Jesus. This is heresy. You're not the Messiah, right? Tell them that. And Jesus's response is so good. He replied, if they keep quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers, mm-hmm. right? And so Jesus said, no, they're, they're right. Yeah. Even though even the five days later they were bailing on him, but but at that moment, yeah, they were correct. They were correct. They were correct. And it, and if they didn't say it, it was going to come out one way or the other. Yeah. Because that's who he that's who he is. And this is the moment where he's revealed as that. You know. So that had to, it had to happen. But but here's what they got wrong, right? Here, this is what we want to make sure that our hearers understand, especially if you're new to this. I think a lot of people who grew up in the church understand this. Ross, what it, what was it that they missed about their picture of Jesus? They thought he was this warrior king who was going to deliver them from Roman oppression, but who was he really, though? Right. That, that, there was a whole bigger picture that all of that represented. There's this whole thread in the Old Testament about the Messiah not just being a king, but also being a suffering servant. 
and this, the servant passages in Isaiah pro- prophetically talk about you know his coming and his. Uh, ultimately, we understand those in retrospect. It's quite clear that it's talking about the cross, um, and so that they miss the idea that the, the, the ultimate victory is not political. The ultimate freedom was not freedom from Rome, but freedom from the oppression of sin. And uh, the ultimate victory was to be reconciled with their Creator, with God, and be, to experience everything that God had in store for them that wasn't just um, national, it wasn't just you know, having a king who was conquering enemies, but it, but it was this whole bigger picture of living in uh, wholeness and in harmony with their Creator. And Jesus had to pay for sin in order for that to happen. They totally missed that part. That's what happens on Friday. They thought, uh-oh, he's losing. It looked like he was losing, but in God's bigger picture, he w- that's where Jesus really actually was winning the battle over sin. But it's because they didn't get the big picture, and that's why I think it's good that we're, we're talking about this today. And next week, we'll have a special Easter episode where we'll kind of finish the rest of the story. For those who have never heard this part of the story, it really understood the Easter message in its fullest context is... Jesus, it wasn't like a, um, he changed his mind or all the prophecies in the Old Testament were a little bit off and Jesus became something else. No, in retrospect, we can look back and see the wonderful, beautiful, wise plan of God himself that he would redeem the world through Jesus. It wasn't about overthrowing Romans. It was about overthrowing sin and it was about freeing us from the tyranny of sin in our own lives. And that's why I want to read this last passage from Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. Maybe you didn't know that there was a Palm Sunday verse in Revelation, but here it is. This is a picture of heaven, essentially, and it says, John writes this in Revelation, After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count. Sounds like Palm Sunday, right? From, but this time it's from every nation and tribe and people and language, not just Jewish people there on Palm Sunday standing in front of the throne before the Lamb. And they were clothed in white robes, and they held palm branches in their hands. And they were shouting with a great roar, Salvation comes from our God, who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. And so this is the story that we have. This is the kind of this is the rest of the story. This is the end of the story because in you know Revelation is talking about sort of the end of times when God's ultimate plan in history is finally fulfilled. Right, and, and you know, those prophecies about Jesus as a king, they weren't, they weren't just um, mistaken. There was a layer that was missed, but those prophecies, they're still going to happen. It's just not with respect to Rome and Israel. It's, res- it's, with, it's with respect to all of God's people internationally, as we see here, and, and Jesus will rule. He'll rule the whole world. One day, and Revelation, the book of Revelation shows him returning and taking command over all of his adversaries, and so those those things will be fulfilled. The timing is up to God, mm-hmm. uh, but we're looking forward to the day when Jesus does establish that rule that was originally promised. We're thankful that he also was the suffering servant along with being the conquering king. Yeah, so whether you find yourself in the camp of the angry adversaries or the fickle followers or hopefully the dedicated disciples for every single knee, every knee will bow, 
every tongue will confess because there's one Lord and his name is Jesus. And that's who we celebrate on Palm Sunday. And so I hope that you find a good church to go to this week and, uh, and really worship the Jesus that we find in the Bible. Not the Jesus that you want to fashion for your own hopes and wishes and needs, but the Jesus that is the King and Lord of all. If you want to learn more about any of this, you can check out this and so many more topics like this for your family, your small group, or your one-on-one mentoring relationship at PursueGod.org. And make sure to join us next week for our special Easter podcast episode.